0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Making a Difference Through Faithful Discipleship. In the first half, Carl Hernandez III shares his address, Devoted Discipleship. Then in the second half, R. Kirk Belknap speaks on wars, rumors of wars, and wise and faithful servants.
1: It's wonderful to be here with you today. I come from a family of migrant farm workers, and I learned many lessons laboring with my parents and grandparents in the fields, vineyards, and orchards of the Central Valley of California. The Central Valley has some of the richest soil in the world, and farmers report that 100% of the nation's raisins, 99% of its almonds, and 95% of its olives are produced there. My life changed forever when two young missionaries first visited our Central Valley home during the winter prior to my 14th birthday. My father was expert in the law of the barrio, also known as street law. He was highly skeptical of strangers and fiercely protective of our family. My mother recently reminded me of the time he called the police because he had spied someone drive-by and put a bomb into our mailbox. The police quickly responded to investigate, only to discover a batch of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Obviously, we were not used to the kindnesses expressed by members of the Church. It is one of the greatest miracles I have ever witnessed when my father allowed the missionaries into our home. Because of the work of the missionaries, my father and mother and my younger brother David and I decided to become members of the Church. One of the first activities I attended after my baptism was a church youth dance. I don't remember what I expected to experience, but when I walked into that church building and saw all of those beautiful Mormon girls, I knew the church was true. (laughs) I am grateful to the missionaries who taught me the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the youth of the church who welcomed me into a new way of life. Since those early years, family and friends—including many students—continue to teach me much about being a more devoted disciple of the Savior. Today I would like to share some thoughts with you on that topic. I remember the foggy winter days I worked preparing raisin grape vineyards for the coming season's harvest. The vines were overrun with the past season's growth and needed pruning in order to produce good fruit. We would remove the suckers and the old and dead wood from the plant. We would then tie the new wood, or vines, to guide wires which were stretched between anchor posts. The vines were then fully exposed to the life-giving light of the sun and could produce plentiful fruit for the harvest. Likening the vines to ourselves, we must be willing to allow the Lord to prune those dispositions, attributes, and cares of the world which prevent us from becoming devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. The Savior is the Lord of the vineyard and does the pruning. The guideposts of the vineyard are the principles of the gospel. The guide wires are the scriptures and the words of the living prophets. The light which gives light to the vine is the Spirit of the Lord. By allowing this pruning process, we can more fully expose our lives to that life giving light so that we can produce plentiful fruit for the harvest. Years ago, Elder Neil A. Maxwell, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, visited our central California stake. A visit from an apostle of the Lord was rare, and we all felt extremely privileged to have Elder Maxwell visit. At the time, Elder Maxwell was suffering from cancer, and the difficulty of his movement to and from the pulpit was quite apparent. Yet he was undeterred by his physical condition. He taught us powerfully by word and deed how we can measure our devotion to the Savior. He said, Let our gratitude be expressed by striving to become, attribute by attribute, more and more as Jesus is. By so living, ours will not then be a mere appreciation of Jesus nor a modest admiration of him, Rather, ours will be an adoration of Jesus expressed by our emulation of Him. In light of Elder Maxwell's counsel, we might ask ourselves where we stand on this continuum. Do we merely appreciate the Savior? Do we have a modest admiration of Him? Or does our personal worship lead to daily decisions to more fully emulate Him? President Ezra Taft Benson taught the virtues outlined by Peter are part of the divine nature or the Savior's character. These are the virtues we are to emulate if we would like to be more like him. Peter's counsel to disciples in all ages is, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness— and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. I believe it is significant that Peter counsels us to add one attribute to another, which suggests that our progression on the path to the greatest attribute, charity, is not attainable without some level of mastery of each of the preceding attributes. It has been helpful for me to view this path as an elevated continuum on which we can measure our progression. As we study these attributes together, I pray that the Holy Ghost can teach each of us where we may be along the continuum and bring to our remembrance areas of improvement we can undertake in order to propel us forward and upward along the path to a more devoted discipleship. The first step on the pathway to devoted discipleship is to exercise faith in the Savior's power to lift us to higher ground. In my opinion, one of the most sorrowful episodes in all scripture is the story of the rich young ruler. The scriptures tell us that the young ruler enthusiastically asked Jesus what he needed to do in order to gain eternal life. It was clear he appreciated or perhaps even admired Jesus. Jesus detailed the requirements of the law of Moses to the young ruler who replied that he had kept these commandments all his life. The young ruler then asked the Savior a pivotal question on which the test of his devotion would turn. What lack I yet? Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. The young ruler went away sorrowful. Jesus had asked the young ruler for increased devotion, a commitment to keep a higher law. Can we imagine ourselves in a personal interview with the Savior in which he asked us to rise to the next level of devotion? Would we walk away sorrowful? Do we have faith in his ability to lift us to higher ground? Add into faith virtue. The Savior said, The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. What enters our eyes can corrupt us, both physically and spiritually. The time we spend with technology as well as what we choose to view can both be a measurement of our virtue. Recently, Arthur C. Brooks, a renowned social scientist, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled The Trick to Being More Virtuous. In his article, Brooks explained that what we choose to access on the Internet says much about our desires and thus our virtue. Borrowing a phrase from Brooks, we might ask ourselves, What will my next click say about me? Will it elevate my desires and my virtue? We are living in the dispensation of the fullness of times with unprecedented advances in communication and access to information. This can be a great blessing to us and to others as we participate in hastening the work of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, however, foresaw the perilous times in which we would live when he said that many would be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Aimless surfing of the internet seems to fit his prophetic statement. On the other hand, increased time in the scriptures can help us to know the mysteries of God and be given to reveal things which have never been revealed. That is exciting to contemplate. The opportunity to study secular knowledge in light of the gospel is what makes BYU a unique place. This kind of integrated learning can and does happen on this campus. Consider the blessing you can be to the world if your communications and your search for knowledge are focused and with this purpose in mind. The power of our learning environment is increased collectively as we individually allow virtue to garnish our thoughts unceasingly. Add to your virtue knowledge. We should diligently seek to know and appropriately use our spiritual gifts to liberate others from temporal and spiritual bondage. If you are struggling to understand the direction you might take with your education or your career, I urge you to carefully study and understand the gifts of the Spirit. I believe your educational and career choices can be enhanced by discovering and using your unique spiritual gifts. The doctrine of spiritual gifts is set forth in the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants—three distinctive canons of Scripture. I believe this adds additional significance to their importance. Consider some of these marvelous gifts—the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment, the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of understanding the diversity of operations, the gift of knowing the differences of administration. In addition to gifts of the Spirit— We each have unique aptitudes, abilities, capacities, and talents to offer this world. Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught, When we pass from preexistence to mortality, we bring with us the traits and talents there developed. And all men with their infinitely varied talents and personalities pick up the course of progression where they left off when they left the heavenly realms. My grandfather, Carl Hernandez Sr., immigrated to the United States from Mexico, and he settled in the Central Valley of California, where he worked as a grafter of fruit trees. Grafting is useful for many purposes, including providing trees with a strong root system, which is resistant to drought, disease, decay, and poor soil conditions. Grafting also allows for an increased production of desirable fruit. The rootstock, which consists of the roots and trunk of a tree, form the foundation for the graft. You have a strong rootstock. Your divine nature as a child of heavenly parents gives you the potential to become like them. In a grafted tree, branches from another tree, or scions, are attached to a strong established rootstock. You possess natural gifts, aptitudes, capacities, and talents which are part of your rootstock. We have also been commanded to earnestly seek after the best gifts as well as additional talents. Acquired gifts and talents are like the scions, which are attached to our rootstock. Increasing your spiritual gifts and talents will allow you to bear much fruit. I invite you to gain a knowledge over your unique natural gifts and talents and to diligently seek and acquire others. The integration of your spiritual gifts into the work you do in this life can both empower you and add joy in your service to others. Add unto knowledge temperance. Temperance requires that we exercise self-control over an impulse to think, act, or speak out in a way which is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the following hypothetical situation. You are late to class and you are driving around what appears to be a full wide lot looking for a parking stall. Suddenly one appears, and you patiently wait as the driver exits the stall, only to have someone swerve in from the opposite direction and take the spot. How you react in this hypothetical situation can say a lot about whether you are a temperate person. This past year a national television station dedicated an entire news story titled, parking-lot wars to reporting the broad spectrum of behaviors shown by those who have parking-lot stall encounters. People have lost lives, limbs, and their dignity because they have been unable to temper their thoughts, words, and deeds in these simple circumstances. Our daily reactions, simple or complex, should be tempered by always keeping an eternal perspective in focus." add to temperance patience. As a young boy, my grandparents, Ignacio and Patricia Noriega, patiently taught me how to pick olives. Olives are harvested by carefully milking each olive from each branch of the tree. It is one of the most tedious and labor-intensive of all farm labor tasks. One thing I learned early in my picking experience is that olives off the tree don't exactly taste like the olives you eat out of the can. The fruit is hard and extremely bitter. Just in case you are tempted, this is not an item you want to add to your raw food diet. In order for an olive to become edible, it must be processed in a lye solution for several days in order to leach out the bitter taste. Like this process, the bitter challenges and chastenings of life, both large and small, require that we exercise patience, endure well, and trust in the Lord's ability to cleanse and purify us. The Apostle Paul taught, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless, after it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Add to patience godliness. A few years ago, my brother gave me some mission statements which his brothers in the Hanford, California, Third Branch had written. Here are a few of the lines from those statements. I want to lift the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will always say, Here am I, Lord, send me. At first glance, nothing seems unusual about these statements. The men of the Hanford Third Branch, however, are those who hold their services in the California State Prison at Avenel. Every week and sometimes multiple times a week, President Ralph Morrill would faithfully visit the brethren of the Hanford Third Branch. Most of society considered these men to be without hope, but not President Morrill. He inspired these men to write mission statements and to have hope for the future. He visited my brother David in what would be his darkest hour, the day David learned that his meek and gentle teenage son had lost his life in a senseless act of violence. Because of President Morrill's service, my brother David has transformed his life. Since David was released from prison almost three years ago, he has helped bring many of his friends to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has earned four semesters of 4.0 grades and will graduate from the local community college this spring. I will be there to celebrate his graduation, and so will President Morrill. President Morrill has invited many men of the Hanford Third Branch to devote their lives to preparing to enter the house of the Lord where the power of godliness is manifest. I believe that President Morrill has attained the attribute of godliness— which involves the capacity to see the divine potential in others and an unfailing dedication to helping them to achieve that potential. Add unto godliness brotherly kindness. I remember a story told by John Huntsman Sr. about a visit he made to President Howard W. Hunter one day. The story greatly impressed me. Brother Huntsman decided to visit President Hunter and found him to be sick. President Hunter said that he was feeling terrible pain in his body, and he asked Brother Huntsman to give him a blessing. Brother Huntsman then asked President Hunter what he thought was causing his illness. President Hunter told him that he had had an unkind thought about another man, and it made him physically sick all day. When I first heard that story, I thought, there is no hope for me. (laughs) However— Whenever I am tempted to treat another unkindly, I try to remember President Hunter's example of brotherly kindness. Add unto brotherly kindness charity. When I was a young boy, my grandfather Ignacio gave my brother David and me a used bicycle as a gift. We quickly thanked him and sped off to give the gift a test ride. When we returned from our ride, my mother asked us to go to a nearby phone booth and telephone our grandmother to thank him for the bike. We arrived at the booth and waited several minutes to make the call. Realizing that the woman using the phone would not leave anytime soon, we decided that it would be best to go to another payphone. As we got on the bike to leave, a police officer arrived in his patrol car. The woman who had delayed us immediately left the booth and protested loudly and emphatically, That is my child's bicycle. It was stolen several months ago. The police officer asked where we had gotten the bicycle, and we answered that we had just received it as a gift from our grandfather. The officer loaded us and the bicycle into the patrol car and took us home where he asked my mother to produce some proof of purchase for the bike. After my mother called him from a neighbor's phone, my grandfather arrived and presented a receipt for the bike's purchase. The receipt showed he had purchased the bike that very morning at the police station auction where unclaimed and recovered property was sold. The officer had a dilemma to resolve—give the bike to the pleading mother or give the bike to us, the recent purchasers. I am sure you have come to your own conclusions based on what you perceive to have been the fairest course of action. The officer returned the bicycle to the woman who had claimed it to be rightfully her child. Of course, my brother and I were devastated. At the time, I felt it was a serious injustice for the officer to have taken the bicycle and given it to this stranger. As time passed, my legal education here at the BYU Law School Only reinforced my feelings about our loss. (laughs) After law school, I returned to work in the city where this bike episode occurred, and I became one of its city attorneys. Ironically, I remember analyzing and applying the very law which should have prevented the officer from taking my first bike had the law been applied correctly. It is only in more recent years that I have come to understand the lasting lesson which my grandfather taught me on that day—one which lives longer in my heart than the bicycle ever could. In my mind's eye, I have come to understand that he must have seen something in that mother's face—a tired yearning for compassion which caused him to allow the bicycle to return to its rightful owner. That day my grandfather taught me a higher law, the second great commandment, how to love your neighbor. My grandfather demonstrated and exercised the gift of charity for another human being. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. The first great commandment requires that we love God with all all our heart, might, mind, and strength. The continuum begins with faith and ends with charity, or the pure love of Christ. Charity requires we love the Savior and all people through the development and mastery of His attributes. Please note that mastery of each of the attributes on the continuum is dependent on our understanding and application of the principle of hope. We must have hope and believe that through Christ we can be more virtuous, knowledgeable, temperate, patient, godly, and kind. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. I testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He lives and that He loves us. May we do all within our power to become His devoted disciples is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen
0: been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Making a Difference Through Faithful Discipleship. We've just heard from Carl Hernandez III. After the break, we'll return with R. Kirk Belknap for Wars, Rumors of Wars, and Wise and Faithful Servants. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Making a Difference Through Faithful Discipleship. Next is R. Kirk Belknap, BYU Associate Professor of Arabic and Director of the National Middle East Language Resource Center at the time of this address, titled Wars, Rumors of Wars, and Wise and Faithful Servants.
2: My dear brothers and sisters, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord will be here with us, that you and I will be edified and instructed from above. I have prayerfully sought the Lord's guidance as I have prepared to speak to you. Let me begin by taking us back to the last week of the Lord's mortal ministry. The Savior has just delivered a stinging rebuke to hypocritical scribes and Pharisees who, instead of serving God and feeding the flock, have given themselves over to seeking the honors of men. Jesus and his disciples had retired across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives from where they could look down on the temple and surrounding buildings. From this vantage point, the place from which the Lord would soon ascend into heaven and the place to which he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, the Good Shepherd warned his under-shepherds of trouble ahead and taught them key principles that will help his followers prepare for his much-anticipated return. He spoke of tribulation and persecution. He said that there would be wars and rumors of wars, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But the end, the destruction of the wicked, will not come until the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. He cautioned us to not despair and charged us to remain vigilant. He then asked, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? In other words, the faithful and wise servant feeds the sheep. The Lord concludes his counsel with three important parables—the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats, the last of which drives home the importance of serving, of feeding the flock. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. I am grateful that the Lord has given us such specific guidance to help us find peace in troubled times and to help us know what we need to do, and do we must, if we wish to be among those who hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. As we hear of wars and rumors of war, as natural disasters increase, as old and new diseases spread, as iniquity abounds. Even Saints are prone to give in to the inclinations of the natural man and hunker down and avoid the battle against evil that we came to this earth to fight. As long as one's relatives, friends, and neighbors are safe and sound, it is tempting to ride off the world and sit back and hope the Lord comes quickly. Brothers and sisters, if our bowels are not filled with charity for the whole world, we have not understood the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we shun the fight, Our lamps are likely to run out of oil, and before we know it, we may find the door shut before us and hear the Lord say to our request to enter, I know you not. No one can be faulted for hoping that the coming of the Lord is nigh. What we must guard against is the tendency to assume that it is too late for us to make a difference. We must pray for love to replace fear, for there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. As Joseph the prophet observed, A man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges through the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. As disciples of Christ, we cannot give up. We have been commanded to seek peace. If we would be worthy to be called the children of Him who maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good— and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, we must love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them that despitefully use us and persecute us. Indeed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I want to tell you about some peacemakers. It has been my great privilege over the years to associate with hundreds of students committed to working for peace. With surprising regularity, students and others knock on my office door or call and say, You may find this strange, but I feel that I am supposed to study Arabic. These people, young and old, have one thing in common—a strong desire to serve the Lord and work toward a better world. Some are only with us for a semester, while others spend years and achieve impressive levels of fluency. All are peacemakers, bridge builders, nothing— softens a person's heart toward a people like learning their language. Let me tell you of one student's story. In 1997, Alicia's family moved to Jerusalem as a result of her father's assignment to teach at the BYU-Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. While there she had the opportunity to travel to Jordan and attend Church meetings with the members of the Amman branch. She was frustrated that she could not speak with them and vowed that she would learn Arabic. True to her word, she enrolled in Arabic 101 the first semester of her freshman year here. Like many students, Alicia found Arabic challenging, but she pushed on, looking forward to returning to Jerusalem in January of 2001 to participate in our winter-spring intensive Arabic program. Less than three months before our scheduled departure, violence broke out in Jerusalem and quickly spun out of control. No students have been sent to Jerusalem since. As a result of remarkable prior events, however, our students ended up spending winter semester in Syria, a land where few Americans go. Once in Damascus, the students applied themselves to learning Arabic. With the help of excellent teachers and good friends, they gradually acquired facility in in the language. Syrians are particularly proud of their language and were deeply impressed to see Americans striving to learn it. Thousands, if not millions, came to know about our students, who were regularly featured on radio, TV, and in print. Everywhere students went, people recognized them. All of the students spent time in serving in the community. Of one such experience, Alicia wrote in her journal, This morning before classes we did service at the handicapped school again. As we entered the gates, as with all other mornings, about twenty or so little Down syndrome kids raced toward us with huge smiles and outstretched arms. We began the routine of the morning with exercises, the national anthem of Syria, and then off to class. As we filed away to class, I was pulled away by a messenger who had been sent to tell me that the director of the school wanted to see me. I followed her to a room where the director and other administrators were anxiously waiting. The principal informed me that their school was to participate in a Mother's Day program where numerous government officials would be in attendance. He asked if I knew any children's songs about mothers that the children could perform. All that I had to draw from was the primary songs of the Church that I had learned and sung to my mother as a primary child. Yes, I know some Mother's Day songs, I replied. Good. Will you sing one for us? (laughs) I was startled. They all sat quietly and waited for the impromptu performance. I motioned to my colleague across the hall to come join me. Then she and I stood and sang. With no practice or prior notice, we sang our hearts out, and as we did so, I felt certain that our voices were amplified by the power of heaven. We sang with the voices of angels that resonated through the stone-arched walkways of this little school. A spirit of peace descended upon all present. At the close of our performance, the director complimented us and asked if we would teach our songs to the children to perform on Mother's Day. We accepted and went to work. For months we practiced, finally the day of performance arrived. As we waited for our turn to perform, we watched the performance of other schools. Instead of the sweet, love-filled holiday I had expected, this had played out instead to be a political rally. Mothers and children, infuriated by their separation from one another by the Israeli occupation of the Golan, chanted out calls of war and pledges to reclaim what had been taken from them. The children walked on stage with guns, flags, and signs of protest. The listening crowd cheered. I began to panic, realizing that it was almost our turn to perform. What we had to offer was such a contrast to what had been presented thus far, yet there was nothing to do but to simply go on and pray that all would go well. We stood on stage and thanked God in heaven for sending us to our dear mothers. We sang of goodness, light, and of peace. A silence fell on the crowd, and for a brief moment the anguish and hate were lifted. All in attendance felt of the peace that emanated from our simple primary songs. Though it was just a Mother's Day program, for me it was a grand experience. During this performance, I came to understand a portion of the pain that these Syrians had experienced, and through our songs we offered to them the healing balm of the Spirit and peace. A bridge of understanding had been built between us, and our message to each other was burned into each other's hearts. End of quote. In April, our group spent a few days visiting Lebanon. We met with the Beirut branch for Church meetings. The room that serves as the chapel was filled to overflowing. The students were thrilled to hear and understand talks given in Arabic and to participate in Arabic Sunday School. In a combined priesthood relief society meeting, Nabil Aswad, the branch president, spoke for a few minutes and then turned the time over to the students to share their testimonies. One after another they rose and bore testimony. The Spirit was powerfully present. Alicia spoke of how she had prayed in her first visit to the Amman branch that she would be able to learn Arabic and participate in the meetings. She wept as she thanked God. After the meetings and after some delicious food provided by the members, students and members got to know each other. Both the Lebanese Saints and the students were hungry for each other's company. The Beirut branch is small and the students had had little or no contact with other members of the Church. The students had also missed having access to a piano, so one student soon began playing hymns and primary songs. A number of students began to sing along. Other students and local members pulled up chairs to listen. Later that day, I wrote in my journal, I was very touched at the sight. Here we were in Beirut, symbol for the West of all that has gone wrong in the region, but we were united in love and peace, praising God. We returned to Damascus to participate in a symposium on Islamic philosophy, jointly sponsored by Damascus University and BYU. Syrian professors, students, dignitaries, and media representatives packed the large room and stood in the hall as President Bateman emphasized the common values and the deep faith in God that the Syrian people and the Latter-day Saints share. Dr. Muwafak Dabul, academic vice president of the University of Damascus, opened the conference by expressing his admiration for BYU and for the Church and its members, recounting personal details of his own visit to Utah in order to attend the conference on the family. He reflected on memories of a family home evening here that left him deeply touched. He concluded his talk by expressing his love for the BYU Arabic students and then He read from letters that they had written in Arabic to the president of Syria about their experiences. One student wrote, What surprised me was the friendliness of the Syrians. In my view, the Syrians are the gentlest nation I have ever met. Syrians always have time to sit and talk with us. People are the most important thing in their lives. He concluded his remarks by holding the students up as an ideal for all to emulate in order to build bridges of understanding between the peoples of the world. A few days later, the students and I bid farewell to Syria, some to return to the US and others to continue on for additional study in Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, and Spain. In each of the three branches of the church in Jordan, the students presented special programs. Returning to Amman meant that Alicia had come full circle and was finally able to communicate with the saints there. Members and their friends thrilled to mingle with young Americans who spoke their language and valued their culture. One of the senior missionaries serving there told me that the students accomplished more in a few days than he would in eighteen months. We went on to similar experiences with the Saints in Cairo. Many of the students commented that these opportunities to strengthen Arab members of the Church were the high point of their study abroad experience. Starting our trip in Istanbul and then covering much of the Mediterranean gave the students a rare feel for Muslim, Jewish, and Christian history and culture. Spain was a particularly fitting conclusion to the trip, it being the culmination of the Umayyad Empire, which was originally based in Damascus. Spain is also home to some of the greatest achievements of Islamic civilization, but more on this in a moment. Our students returned home just two months before the tragic events of September 11th. I am convinced that they were sent to Damascus and other places by a loving Father in Heaven who knows all things. They softened many hearts, and their hearts were filled with love and understanding in turn. Individuals can make a critical difference in the course of history. I believe that the world is a better place and that it will be a better place because of what these students and others have done and what they are doing and what they will yet do. Many of them are or will be in positions of responsibility that will allow them to be a force for good, for peace, for understanding, perhaps their greatest contribution they will make through their children. Weeks after her return to the U.S., Alicia left to serve in the Singapore Mission, from which she returned in January. She recently wrote me. For the first year of my mission I served in countries ruled by Islamic governments and among the Muslim people. Although we were not generally permitted to teach Muslims, there were numerous occasions where I had opportunity to build bridges. I attended several Islamic conferences and was able to speak with the conference participants, often in Arabic, and tell them of my experiences in Jerusalem, Syria, and other places. They were interested in our study abroad program. They were interested in my love for the Muslim people and expressed a desire for future programs to their countries so that students will likewise come to understand and love them as I do the people of Syria. I was daunted by the fact that I would be the sole representative there. However, I was comforted by remembering that the Lord had prepared me through experiences such as the Islamic Translation Series Conference in Damascus. Where I, with the other students, was able to represent our program and answer questions that I would later be asked again as I stood on my own in Malaysia. I have no doubt that those experiences were in the plan of the Lord and that He prepared me for them. End of quote. As I prepared to speak to you, I was struck by the parallels between the sons of Mosiah and students like Elisha. Our world desperately needs more sons and daughters of Mosiah—people who will patiently and lovingly serve in the courts of modern-day Limonis. We cannot, nor should we all, book passage for exotic lands tomorrow, but we can prepare our hearts and prepare our children's hearts. We can pray, we can yearn, we can learn, and we can refuse to give up on any of our father's children. Let us look at another example from the Book of Mormon—that of Mormon himself, soldier and peace-seeker. He never gave up. Even when it was apparent that he could do no more for those of his generation, shortly before he is killed by the Lamanites, he turns to addressing their descendants. His last words of loving counsel are written to future generations of Lamanites, and the last words of his son are likewise addressed to the children of those who killed his father. Yes, that wonderful final chapter of the Book of Mormon, that chapter that speaks of testimony, of gifts of the Spirit, of faith, hope, and charity, of covenants and sanctification, Moroni opens this, his final outpouring of love and counsel, by saying, Now I, Moroni, write somewhat as seemeth me good, and I write and to my brethren, the Lamanites." We too must press on in our discipleship, praying for that gift of charity that will enable us to see every man as a brother and every woman as a sister. Let us return to our group's final days in Spain. After months of visiting some of the great monuments of Islamic architecture, the students stood in front of the Madrid temple. They readily recognized Islamic elements in that beautiful edifice. Islamic influence on LDS temple architecture may come as something of a surprise to some of you. Let me explain. For nearly 800 years, much of what is now Spain was part of the Islamic world. As a result, the pervasive influence of Arab culture is very much a part of Spain. For example, this tie is a gift that my students bought for me in Toledo. Its distinctive repeating geometric design could have come straight from the walls of a mosque or palace in various parts of the Muslim world. Muslims inherited a love of geometric cosmic symbolism from the Byzantine and Greco-Roman world, which can in turn be traced back to ancient Egyptian influence. For example, star patterns appear in the marble inlay of the important Umayyad monuments such as the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem and especially in the domes of the Great Mosque in Cordoba in Spain—all of these are exercises in cosmic geometry that pull the human soul to a transition back to its origins and to God. I find the Islamic influence on the architecture of the Madrid temple deeply symbolic of the role that the Prophet Muhammad and Islamic civilization played in laying the groundwork for the Restoration which is eventually to gather together all things in one in Christ. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Latter-day Saints universally acknowledge the important preparatory role played by the Reformation. If not for the work of reformers like Martin Luther, who paved the way for religious freedom, (laughs) Joseph Smith would have been burned at the stake long before Peter, James, and John could confer priesthood keys on him. The Reformation did not take place in a vacuum. Critical events in history prepared the way. I believe that the advent of Islam is one important factor that contributed considerably to making a better world, including preparing the way for the Reformation and the Restoration. In 1978, the First Presidency acknowledged the important role of the Prophet Muhammad and others when they issued this statement. The great religious leaders of the world, such as Muhammad, Confucius, and the Reformers, as well as philosophers including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. We believe that God has given and will give to all people sufficient knowledge to help them on their way to eternal salvation. Many Latter-day Saints are of the opinion that little or nothing of note took place between the time of the apostasy and the Renaissance. They rarely stop to consider the factors that transformed Western Europe from a backward collection of quarreling tribes into an economic, scientific, and cultural powerhouse. I will suffice here with noting a few ways that Islamic civilization has directly and indirectly blessed our lives. Islam provided a much-needed challenge to Christianity that was becoming more and more corrupt. It played a crucial role in preserving and significantly improving on the achievements of Persian, Indian, Greek, and other civilizations. In the words of my colleague, Professor Daniel Peterson, The civilization that grew out of the Arab conquests and the spread of Islam was, for several centuries, the undisputed leader of the world in virtually every field of intellectual activity. Arabic was the language of science and mathematics and of philosophy." Muslim Jewish and Christian scholars and scientists working together made revolutionary breakthroughs. Muslim centers of learning in Spain and Sicily provided Western Europe easy access to knowledge and methods that helped to fuel the Renaissance. Latin translations of Arabic medical and philosophical textbooks were required reading in European universities. Arab navigational tools and techniques facilitated early European exploration of the globe. Many educated Europeans learned Arabic in order to gain direct access to the intellectual treasures of Islamic civilization. One of these was Martin Luther, who made a careful study of the Quran. I am sure that it is no matter of accident nor luck that Luther and his ideas survived to change the world. Charles V, the most powerful European monarch of the time and the newly proclaimed recipient of the title Holy Roman Emperor, condemned Luther as a heretic a key factor in preventing Charles V from succeeding in executing Luther and squelching the Protestant movement was the fact that Ottoman armies were threatening to overrun Austria itself. Indeed, the Lord worketh in many ways to the salvation of his people. Let me add that Muslims and peoples of many other faiths continue to bless our lives in many ways. Our closest allies in the struggle to strengthen the family are our Muslim and Catholic brothers and sisters. My faith and the faith of my wife and children have been greatly strengthened through our associations with faithful Muslims and others. I consider my friend and colleague, Professor Muhammad Issa, to be something of a modern Colonel Kane. He has come to the rescue and blessed me, the University, and the Church time and time again. Some day when all things are revealed I am confident that we will marvel at the debt we owe to peoples all across the earth peoples we never dream to stop and think back to our little group in Madrid as the last rays of the sun faded and the temple glowed brighter and brighter I observed that the islamic elements before our eyes Seemed a fitting way to honor the culture that passed on light that would culminate in the restoration. How appropriate it is that the house of the Lord that exists to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers brings together contributions of all of Abraham's children. Now let us turn to the oldest section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Of all that Moroni, Moroni the peace seeker, said to young Joseph during his visits to the Smith home, only this prophecy was privileged to be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Ten years later, the Lord instructed his beleaguered Saints Therefore, renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. Let us remember that all are alike unto God, that the entire world is populated by sons and daughters of God sons and daughters who chose him and his plan. Even if we never serve in Lamoni's court, let us do what we can where we are and remember that the fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Let us look to Father Abraham and remember the promises made to him and to us. Let us do as he did and become a blessing to all nations that it may be written of us as it was of the sons of Mosiah. And thus they were instruments in the hands of God, in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And how blessed are they, for they did publish peace, they did publish good tidings of good, and they did declare unto the people that the Lord reigneth. That we may ever be found publishing peace, is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Making a Difference Through Faithful Discipleship with thoughts from Carl Hernandez III and R. Kirk Belknap. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.